All right, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1. We're going to try to cover verses 2 through 17. We won't cover all of them tonight, but we'll, we'll read them to start. We'll go from there. For those of you that are listening online, I gave the, uh, uh, the people that are here live a warning. I'm going to give those that are listening online a warning. This is one of those lessons that if you have small children, um, they might, you might want to take them away from uh, the computer right now or over how you're listening uh, we're going to be dealing with some issues here in the scriptures that some might consider PG-13 at easiest. It might be even R-rated at places. So, um, but it's the Word of God, and it's actually very important for us, and I'm not going to hesitate to preach the whole book. All right? So Matthew chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 2. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, these sections of Scripture tend to kill us. If you've ever tried to read through the Bible, you probably came to sections like this back in Genesis and other places, and it just seemed to get, you get bogged down. And we have a tendency to just skip over them, but I just want to remind you that 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says what? That all scripture is God-breathed and useful for reproach and training and teaching and correction. So folks, keep in mind, if every word of this book is God-breathed, these verses here are here for a reason. As you're going to see, there's a multitude of reasons. But what we're going to look at tonight is, a, is an anomaly in the genealogy here that Matthew has. Now, if you remember from last week's study, Matthew goes back to Abraham and not all the way back to Adam because he's just showing that Jesus came from Abraham through David and that proves that he's the Christ. But in his genealogy, he does something that is very rare. If you even study genealogies, you'll notice women are hardly ever mentioned. It's always the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. But Matthew not only lists women, he lists five women in his genealogy here in this short period that he's covering. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to cover four of them, hopefully, Lord willing, time-wise. We're going to cover four of them. We'll come to the fifth one uh, next week, or sorry, two weeks from now when we meet again. 
All right, so let's take a look at each one. Let's, you see in verse 3 the first woman that's mentioned, and her name is Tamar. All right, go with me to Genesis chapter 38, because some of you might not know much about Tamar. Well, you're about to. In Genesis chapter 38, we're going to read verses 1 through 30. It said, It happened at the, that time that Judah, this is one of the sons of Jacob, Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, that's important, we'll come back to that in a little bit, whose name was Shua. He took her and he went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now in the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. And he and his friend, Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up. And she sat at the entrance to a name which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up now, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So she gave them to her, so, so he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil. She put on the garments of, of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where's the cult prostitute who was at a name at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out, and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are. And the, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. All right. Now, as you can see, how do you feel about your family line now? You feel a little better? You're about to see it's going to be messy all the way through this genealogy. 
from the beginning, Judah starts off by doing something that God said not to do. He actually buried a Canaanite woman. Go with me back to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28, just look at verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and he blessed him and he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Remember, God had made clear that he wanted the nation of Israel to stay separate from the other nations in this way. And Jacob tells his, sorry, Isaac tells his son Jacob, don't marry a Canaanite woman. By the way, what does Jacob end up going on and doing? Well, go on now to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now, Jacob wasn't the one who did it. It was one of, remember, it was one of his, one of his, his, Esau that did it, not Jacob. Jacob walked in obedience. Esau is the one who went and married the Canaanite woman just to spite his dad. But go Deuteronomy, go to Deuteronomy chapter 7 now, verses 1 through 4. Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 4. And look at the law says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering and to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So here we see the law of God through Moses. They were not to marry of other nations, especially as you saw the Canaanites. Go to Joshua chapter 23. Joshua chapter 23, look at verses 1 through 13. It says, a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and its heads, its judges and officers, and he said to them, I'm now old and well advanced in years, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it's the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I've allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep all, to do all that is written, to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day." For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it's the Lord your God who fights for you, just as He promised you. Be very careful there to love the Lord your God, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground the Lord your God has given you. So God has said very clearly, we've already seen Genesis 28, 1, Deuteronomy 7, and 1 and following. We've seen Joshua 23. God has said over and over in their early history, don't intermarry with these other nations. Why? They'll lead you to follow their gods. Oh, by the way, that, that even happened to Solomon, didn't it? At the end of his life. 
So what happened to the nation of Israel? Why were they removed from the land and taken into captivity in Babylon? Because of the wickedness and the idolatry and all that stuff we've seen. So we go back to the story here and we actually see that in the lineage of Jesus is a Canaanite woman. I want you to hear this because you're going to hear this tonight over and over and over. God uses messed up people. You're about to see that God uses broken, disobedient people for his purposes. I love the fact that the Bible doesn't hide the warts of its men and women of God. I like the fact that the story of Judah and Tamar is in the Bible. Because if you were to write a Bible, if you were to write a story that you were trying to make God look good, you wouldn't tell this side of your family, would you? Oh, by the way, this stuff's not on Facebook. What's on Facebook is the perfect day. I'm having a great hair day. Look at how we're in Cancun. And everything that's wonderful is what we put on Facebook. By the way, I don't have Facebook, but I hear that's what you all do. But here's the deal. The Bible shows all. And you're going to see that God uses messed up people. Even though God said, do not marry a Canaanite, a Canaanite is in the lineage of Jesus. But... I don't know if you caught this or not. This story about Judah and Tamar tells us a whole lot more about Judah than it does Tamar. Let me point out some things about Judah that's in this story that you may not realize. First off, if you know from Genesis 37, Judah was a scoundrel towards his brother Joseph. Back when the brothers all conspired against Joseph and thought to kill him, Judah was the one that said, we can make money off of this kid if we sell him. So he was a scoundrel toward his brother Joseph. Oh, Judah also sought the company and formed business partnership with pagans, which the Bible says we're not to do. You know, even the Bible says for us in the church not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But if you remember back in our story in Genesis chapter 38, we see he joined partnership with Hiram the Adulamite. Not only that, he married a Canaanite woman himself and then got a Canaanite woman for his son. He also failed to keep his promise to Tamar, the promise to give his next son. And also it appears that he obviously slept with prostitutes on a regular basis. How in the world would Tamar know, hey, if I dress up like a prostitute, he'll sleep with me? Unless it was known that's the kind of guy he was. And doesn't the story in the Bible read kind of like that's what he did? Boy, wouldn't it be sad if your kids said, huh, my dad will do this, my dad will always do that, and it's things you're not real proud of. But by the way, your wife and your kids know you who you really are. Not only that, it appears that he had very little to do with the God of his fathers. You don't read a whole lot about Judah walking with God. Oh, but don't miss this either. Tamar committed no adultery when she slept with Judah. I don't know if you all know this or not, but because the brother didn't do what he was supposed to do. By the way, the reason why Onan spilled his seed on the ground is because he knew that if he produced a child through her, the child would not be his. It would be considered his brother's. And if he died, his inheritance would go to who? To that son who would now, his inheritance would be passed on to his brother and not to him. 
He didn't want that. But on top of that, Judah then was supposed to, if you know the law of leveret marriage, Deuteronomy, you can go check it in Deuteronomy chapter 25. He was supposed to give the next son, but he didn't do that. If there was no son to produce the offspring for the brother, who was next in line? Judah. She actually was not committing adultery. She was acting righteously in line with the system that God had set up. Well, that's very obvious. When he sins with a prostitute and then says, burn her because she's been immoral. Oh, trust me, we saw in the story in the New Testament where the woman was caught in the act of adultery, but they only brought the woman. But at the same time, keep this in mind as well. Judah says, if you go back to that story, he says, she is more righteous than I because I didn't give her my son, Sheila. There's a whole lot here. But again, God is merciful. God is full of grace. And God uses messed up people. So we see in our lineage tonight of Jesus is a woman who's a Canaanite who pretended to be a prostitute to sleep with her father. And through her and Judah, by the way, is Judah a really neat guy? Someone you'd be proud of at family reunions? But through Judah and Tamar comes the lineage of Jesus. Who's the next woman listed? Do you see her? She's in verse 5. I heard it. Rahab. What do we know about Rahab? She's not pretending to be a prostitute. She actually is a prostitute. Oh, and by the way, is she a Jew or a Gentile? Gentile. Go to Rahab's story. Go to Joshua chapter 2. Let's see what we can learn from Rahab's story. In Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 24. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had already taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they, came, where they were from. And when, they, when the gate was shut, about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax so that, that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pur- pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens and above and on the earth beneath." Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. 
If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she lit them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall. For her house was, sorry, built was in the city wall, so she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we will be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also, the, all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Now, there's some things we can see here about Rahab. She's an actual prostitute. She's also a Gentile. But she fears the Lord. Don't miss that. The two spies, first off, by the way, didn't go to her house to use her services. They went to her house most likely because it wouldn't be strange to see some strange men going into her house. It would be a good place to hide because lots of strange men went in and out of that house. So them going into a house of a prostitute, great place to not be caught. Oh, Rahab, though, Rahab obviously knows who these two Jewish men are before she's told. How do you know that? Because when the king sends people to say, hey, those two men that came into your house, they're spies. They're here to spy out the land. How do we know from the story she already knew who they were before she was told? She had already hidden them before the word comes to her about them. Somehow she finds out who they are. And because she's already become a believer in the God of Jacob, and the God of Isaac and the God of Abraham, because of the fact that she's heard and she believes. Isn't it amazing how God did all these miracles and so many Jews that actually walked across the dry ground and saw the miracles didn't believe? But the one Gentile woman who heard it, believed. You never know how the seed's going to hit the ground out there, folks. You might be witnessing to one person thinking, I'm going to witness to this person so they'll get saved. And somebody else is over here listening. And that's the one who believes. You just never know. But again, what do we know from the fact that uh, Matthew puts Rahab in the story? You're going to hear it a lot tonight. God is merciful. God is full of grace. And God uses messed up people, I'm going to add something to it now, who turn to him. God uses messed up people who turn to him. There's another lady in this Bible story. What's her name? Nope. There's one before you get to the wife of Uriah. In verse 5, Ruth. Ruth. Oh, by the way, is Ruth a Jew? Man, we're three for three. We're three for three. Go to Ruth, chapter 1. Look at verses 1 through 18.
Ruth chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited His people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, I may become, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should, if I should say that I have hope, even if I should say I have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth is from where? Moab. What do we know about the Moabites from our study in Ezekiel? How did the Moabites come about? Oh, I heard you over here. From Lot and his daughters. Remember? One gave birth to Moabites and the other one gave birth to the Ammonites. Moab, the people of Moab came from an incestuous relationship with Lot and his daughters when they got him drunk. Moabites and the Ammonites were enemies of the nation. They weren't just other nations. They were enemies of Israel. Another great family tree, by the way. Don't you see it? But Ruth turned from her idols to the God of Naomi, and God in turn chose her to be the mother of the grandfather of King David, the mighty king of Israel. God chose this Gentile Moabite who came from a horrible lineage. But when she in faith turned to the God of Israel, he chose to use her to have come through her. Who? David eventually, Obed, and then Obed gave birth to Jesse, and Jesse gave birth to David, King David. Have you heard it yet? God is merciful. God is full of grace. And God uses messed up people who turn to him. I hope that starts to sink into your head, because a lot of us have been told by the enemy, we have to be perfect or else God can't use us. By the way, if God only used perfect people, 
Would there be a lineage or a genealogy here in Matthew? No, it would say, and there was God and Jesus. <laughs> there would be nobody in between. All right. All right, Jeff, who's, who's the next one in line? Isn't that interesting? It doesn't list her name. She's described as what? Uriah's wife. Why would Matthew not just say Bathsheba, the wife of David? Why would Matthew, in his genealogy, say the wife of Uriah? He's pointing out God uses messed up people. Folks, this genealogy, if you notice, and there's so much more we'll get to next time we get together. That's, I haven't even going to take the time to point out to you tonight. We're just looking at these women right now. But Matthew's going out of his way, it almost seems, to point out that God uses Gentiles, Canaanites, Moabites in his purposes to accomplish his plan to bring the Messiah through the nation of Israel. And instead of saying Bathsheba, the wife of David, because you can trace Solomon and David, you know, through Bathsheba. He calls her the wife of Uriah. Reminding us of her sin and David's sin. Some of you say, well, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, go to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 27. It says, It's been the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. Now it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of his king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That means she had just finished her cycle. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now before we go any further, why did the Bible go out of its way to tell us she just finished her cycle? Gross. What's the point? What? Not just fertile. Not just preparing herself. Ah, very good. Did you see what she just brought out? The Bible's showing us this can't be Uriah's baby. Oh, every word's God breathed, folks. We read it and go, why would they take the time to tell us she just finished her cycle? Oh, that means... This ain't Uriah's baby. She wasn't already pregnant. Yeah, Grandma Cuckoo's on earth. That's why she knew that stuff. Look at verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and didn't go down to his house. When they told David Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why don't you go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark of Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? 
as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said, I've got to get him to cover up my sin. <laughs> then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that David made him drunk. In the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he didn't go down to his house. David's thinking if I get him drunk, he'll stumble home and sleep with his wife, and nobody will be the wiser because they won't come up with DNA testing for a couple thousand years. <laughs> in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, if he says to you, Why did you go so near, so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubaseth? And didn't a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. In other words, that will calm him down. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab sent to him to send him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Don't let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and, she, and he brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Um, even mighty King David, by the way, folks, is shown to be messed up and sinful. Oh, but don't miss, if you were to take the time and look at Psalm 51, verses 1 through 17, after David committed his sin with Bathsheba, he was grieved. And he acknowledged his sin. Go ahead, Jeff. He also names Uriah the Hittite as one of his 30 men at the end of his life. Yes. He was one of his mighty men. And he did him wrong. But David realized his sin. And he confessed it and acknowledged it. We're going to go somewhere with this tonight. Because some of us can run with this. God is full of mercy. God's full of grace. And God uses messed up people. And we can think to ourselves, good, I feel better. And that gives me a little license. So stick around. We're going we're gonna to close with something tonight that might scare you back into uh, don't take advantage of that truth. But, in, but acknowledge that truth. Bathsheba, by the way, also seems to be somewhat complacent in all this. Look again at 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 4. So David sent messengers to her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. We don't really see much of a struggle, do we? I don't know exactly how it all played out, but it's an interesting situation. Was this all David, or was Bathsheba possibly involved in the process? Again, we, we could be, do you tell no to game? You can. You know, some, some people took risks. Esther took a risk, you know. I don't know. 
I'm not going to say either way. But what have we learned from this story? <laughs> no, no, no. If you haven't heard it yet, let me say it to you again. God is merciful. God is full of grace. And he uses messed up people who what? Turn to him. Because see, something interesting thing happens. After the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David, and the child born to them here at the end of this section we just read dies, David and Bathsheba make another baby, and his name is Solomon. Go to chapter 12 and look at verses 24 and 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her, and he lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon, and the Lord loved him, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidah, Jedidiah, sorry, because of the Lord. Most of us today would say that relationship started in sin. God would never bless it. But God's a God of mercy. God is full of grace. And God uses messed up people who turn to him. And when he acknowledged his sin, we'll get right to you. When he acknowledged his sin, and David forgave him his sin. There were still consequences of that action. And that child that was born to them died. But then he lays with Bathsheba and she gives birth to a son. And God loves him. And we'll come back to something in a second. Go ahead. I'm sorry? They all make a profession of faith in God mm -hmm. at some point. Does Bathsheba ever? We don't have any record that Bathsheba puts her faith in God, but Bathsheba's not really the, uh, the focus here, is it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. No, we have no record of whether or not Bathsheba puts her faith in God. But what do you all know about Solomon? Not only the wisest man who ever lived, well, not only the richest man who ever lived, I'm sorry? <laughs> he had a definitely a good start and a bad finish. Okay, let's go back. There, this guy David, his dad, wanted to build the temple. And God said, no, I'm not going to choose. I've chosen you to build my temple. I don't, you're a man of blood. You've men of war. You've killed lots of people and shed blood. It's not a bad thing. That's what I gifted you to do. But I don't want a man of blood building my temple. He chose Solomon the son of Bathsheba. All right, can anybody here tell me that you've got God figured out now? God says, my ways are not your ways. Your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts and my thoughts aren't the same. Oh, there were definitely consequences of sin. We'll get to that. You're, you're jumping ahead of me, but you're right. But... Solomon didn't end up so great either, even though he's the wisest man who ever lived. But why? Because God's wiser. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, it says in the book of 1 Corinthians. Because what did God say way, way back? We already saw it. These foreign wives, they're going to lead you to follow their gods. And even the wisest man who ever lived thought he was smarter than God. And he wasn't. But again, you're getting ahead of me. Actually, let's just deal with it now. Go ahead. Go for it. The other questions aren't real. This one is. All right. I'm ready. Hittites were Canaanites, so they were also forbidden. Yeah. Is it possible that Bathsheba was a non-Jew? Couldn't tell you. Possible. But again, it was the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. 
Possibly. We don't know. God is merciful, guys. God is full of grace. And God uses messed up people who turn to him. Who's the, who's the fifth woman listed in this genealogy? Mary. Now, before we look at Mary, we're not going to look at Mary tonight. There's too much to look at Mary to deal with tonight. So we're not going to look at her tonight. Before we do, we have to deal with this question that's been creeping up. Each of you have been sensing it and realizing, okay, Jim, it's true. God's merciful. He's full of grace. He uses messed up people who turn to them. But does that just give us free license then? Well, there's a short answer, by the way, and there's a long answer. The short answer is no. Okay? The long answer is no. So what I want to do tonight is I want to take you to show you what the Scripture says to believers about this issue. The issue is this. Since God is full of mercy and grace, can we live however we want, and then at the last minute turn to Him for forgiveness, and can we who, like Matthew and Paul, remember our sinful past and his grace, presume upon that grace since he's a God who forgives. Since he's full of mercy and grace and he uses messed up people, wouldn't we bring God more glory by just living messed up lives and then he get more glory because of how messed up we are and that he gets the glory? Oh, I'm going to show you scriptures that speak to believers about this issue. I'm going to show you scriptures that speak to non-believers about this issue. And the Bible says to both groups, don't play with that. Go to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Look at verses 18 through chapter 6, verse 23. Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass, this is Adam's trespass, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. What Jesus did. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will become righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, real quickly to remind you, why did the law come in to increase the trespass? What does the law make us want to do? Sin. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, that the, the, the fuel of sin or the power of sin is the law. What fuels our sin is the law saying, don't do it. Thou shalt not. Now you want to. It's just that's how we're wired. So the law came in to increase the trespass in order to reveal it because so many people think I'm not a sinner. Yeah, good luck. Keep the law. So that as sin reigned in death, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Paul says, by no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. 
For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members or your body parts to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you're not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, having and have become slaves of righteousness. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once, pre you once presented your body parts as slaves to impurity and your lawlessness to leading to more and more lawlessness. So now present your body parts as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from those things in which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, let me take a second here to try to explain this to you. Paul says, it didn't matter how much sin there was because God's grace is greater than any amount of sin. So he sent the law to increase the trespass so that the trespass would become evident so people would acknowledge their sin and realize their need of a Savior. So where sin increased, God's grace increased all the more. And Paul says, I know the humanity that's out there listening to what I just said. Some of you are going to say, well, if God's grace increases when sin increases, why don't we sin more so we can get more grace? And his answer is, you're totally missing the point. And then let me clarify for you what he says in that long section. If you think that way, you might not be saved. If you honestly can think that way, you might not be saved. Because there's a difference between those of us who have been born again and put into Christ and those who are still living according to the flesh. We've been set free from that kind of stuff. Why would you go back to the kind of stuff you were ashamed of thinking that's going to bring you more glory? He says pretty much, listen, you need to consider yourselves in the condition that you are. By the way, in the cruise, we're going to really deal with this in the first session when it talks about how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're going to deal with the depth of that truth, of what it means to be in Christ. And I don't think hardly any Christian fully understands it, including yours truly. But we're going to try to dive into the depths of what it means to be in Christ. But this much I know. The Bible says the, the Spirit of Christ set me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, I don't even have to worry about whether or not I'm sinning or not sinning because that's been taken care of. Now my focus is, should not be on sinning or not sinning. My focus should be on what? Pleasing God, just worshiping the Lord and growing in my walk with Him. Oh, do I still sin? Of course. Do I, but at the same time, my focus is not sinning anymore because God has set me free from that. What the law could not do, Christ already did. But if your attitude is, well, then I can sin more 
you're focusing on living and obeying the flesh. And you're living for the flesh, not for the spirit. And there's a difference between those of us who live according to the spirit and those of us who live according to the flesh. If you even think that's okay, you're probably not saved. Because those of us who have been born again, we don't even think that way. We don't even think that way. We focus on who we are now in Christ. Folks, let me tell you, one of the greatest things for me as a Christian growing in my walk with the Lord was when I stopped focusing on how I was doing. And I stopped focusing on my sin. And I really started to believe all the truths of what the Bible says, who I am in Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, the focus on sin went away. The struggle with sin started to, to go away. And my relationship with the Lord grew and grew in, in, in just astronomical amounts in comparison. Because now I was walking in faith according to who I was in Jesus Christ. So if you're a believer out there today that says God is full of mercy, God's full of grace, and he uses messed up people, and that means I can just be a messed up person. Oh, let me tell you two things to you. One, if you think that's okay, there's a chance you're not saved. Secondly, you could be saved and try to think that way, uh, but the Bible says that there's such a thing as a sin unto death. There actually is, according to the scriptures, time, there are times when God will take a believer home early because of their disobedience. They ain't going to record any more reward in heaven. They're doing more damage to the kingdom than they're doing good. And even though they're saved, as 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 says, as one escaping through the flames, there's no reward. They're only there by the grace of God. He'll take you home early. You want to go and just live however you want and then hope to at the last second say, okay, God, you might not get that last second. He may take you home early, and I don't think you want to mess with that. Now for the unbeliever, go to... Romans chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard heart and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Did you hear what he's saying? By the way, he said, for the unbeliever. If you don't deal with this sin problem, yes, God might have been merciful to you. He might have given you more time. But you don't realize that as you do that, you're storing up more judgment, more of God's wrath on the day of judgment. You say, well, what's the big deal? Hell's hell. No, hell is not hell. Hell is real and hell is an eternal place of punishment. But the Bible teaches there are levels of punishment in hell for eternity. I don't know how it plays out, but those who in hell, some suffer more than others. The Bible teaches that without question. And I'm going to ask you tonight, as we've been looking at these stories, do you all remember a man named Ur? Does anybody remember a man named Ur? Who was Ur? I'm sorry? 
Nope, not, not Ur. I'm talking from our stories tonight. Judah's son, the firstborn. What happened to him? He was wicked, and the scripture said God killed him. Does anybody remember Onan? He was wicked. What he did was wicked in the eyes of God, and God killed him. Oh, Elimelech. Anybody remember him, Elimelech? That was the Jewish man who took his family to Moab when the scripture said, don't go live with those people. Oh, but there's famine here. So you're going to turn to the enemies of God for provision instead of trusting in God and dealing with the discipline of the Lord? The reason there's famine in Israel is because Israel has been in disobedience. But instead of staying there and being, going through the discipline and trusting that God will provide through, through the, for you through the discipline, he decides to go to the nation of his enemies, the enemies of God and seek for their provision for him. And what did God do to Elimelech when he did that? God took him. Oh, do you guys remember a couple boys named Malon and Kilion? God killed them too. Now, for those of us who know the rest of our Bible, there's a man named Ananias. There's another woman named Sapphira. I believe they were believers. They probably thought they had a lot more time. Does anybody know who Achan is? We'll get to you in a second, Josh. I mean, Zach. Does anybody know who Achan is? Who's Achan? Yeah. Remember that everything in Jericho was devoted to the Lord. No one was to take anything as a spoil for themselves. And Achan took some stuff and hid it in his tent. By the way, what did God do to Achan and his whole family? They were stoned. By the way, what happened to the whole world of Noah's day? God is merciful. God is full of grace. And he uses messed up people who turn to him. But the scripture says, don't presume upon that grace. And don't Christians use your freedom as a license to sin. Because God still calls the shots and he determines when your time on this earth is up. So if your attitude is, I get to live however I want because God uses messed up people, dude. Are you promised tomorrow? Yes. Will God save you on your deathbed? We see that the thief on the cross right before he died was given grace. But will everybody get that opportunity? Some people receive more light than others. It's going to be easier on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Capernaum. God doesn't give everybody the same amount of time. God doesn't give the same, everybody the same amount of drawing. Don't miss the fact that God is merciful and God is full of grace. And he uses messed up people who turn to him and run to him now if you don't know him. Because you need that grace. You need that mercy. It is evident in the scriptures that you don't have to be perfect to be a part of God's plan. But don't presume that that means you get to determine when your last chance for reconciliation with God is done. He tells the believers, don't use your freedom as a license to sin. And for those of us who have been set free from sin, why would we even think about that? We're focusing on this now. And for the unbeliever, he says, are you presuming upon the kindness of the Lord and his forbearance and his patience with you? Not knowing that his kindness is to lead you to repentance, 
But if you don't repent, you've already just stored up even more wrath for yourself between when you didn't respond and the time he gave you. So what is the response that we're all to have? We're to say, God, thank you for your mercy. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you use messed up people who turn to you. I turn to you. I turn to you. I love you guys. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.